We want to welcome you to the Bible teaching ministry of Fellowship Bible Church, where our desire is to honor God by faithful obedience to His Word. If you want to understand the Bible better, please continue to listen as Pastor Matt Postiff explains and applies the biblical text one verse at a time. You can reach us with questions or for more teaching audio and print material at our website, fbcaa.org. You can also watch our services live at fbcaa.org live. We want to thank you for listening and pray that you will be edified. Join us now as Pastor Postiff opens God's Word. We're Matthew chapter 28 tonight again. If you'd turn your Bibles there, Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 through 20. This is the Great Commission. We saw the beginning of this last time. Christians are responsible to propagate their faith in Jesus Christ. The faith, and it says in verse 18, And Jesus came and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Amen. Well, we began last time with an illustration of uh, dangerous Coast Guard rescue operations and the howling winds off the Alaska coast and uh, tried to liken that analogy to our work in rescuing the lost uh, who are out uh, rolling with the waves of the sea. And uh, if you ever have watched a video about that or been in a situation like that, you must realize the terror that would overtake a soul who thinks they might be soon to drown and go to the bottom of the ocean. Well, that's the terror that people should have with regard to being lost. Uh, So we looked at the Great Commission. Um, The words uh, there do not appear in the verses of Scripture anywhere, in fact. Um, And we mentioned, I'm just reviewing now, uh, we mentioned also that uh, the Great Commission is carried out according to the book of Acts and its example in the context of planting local churches. You don't see uh, just in, basically, you don't see evangelism happening in a part, apart from churches. You might see an example like Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch. But of course, what, the first, what was the first thing the Ethiopian eunuch did probably when he got home? He worked on some other people and they started having worship to God in the Christian way down there in Ethiopia. Um, so that's, uh, that's the, the kind of transmission of the Christian faith over the course of time. Um, And we said that the Great Commission did not only apply to the disciples, the apostles, but also applies derivatively to whom? To us, because they were to teach the the new followers everything Jesus had taught them. The Great Commission is part of that, so they teach the Great Commission to them, and they teach it to the next generation, and they teach it to the next one. Pretty soon you have the earth filling up with people teaching each other about the Great Commission like we're doing tonight, and we're doing that to prepare you to set a foundation for you to know that you've got to go out and do that. Not just me, or not just Jansen, or not just our wives, but all of us together have to be participants in the Great Commission. We also, on Sunday night, read all of the portions in the New Testament that cover the Great Commission. So there are five of them. Matthew, we just read. Mark, Luke, John, and the first chapter of the book of Acts all have parts and pieces of the Great Commission, some repetition, some new material is recorded by the different apostles. 
So we read all those, made some comments on that. And then we began by looking at the first point, which is the foundation of the Great Commission. The foundation of the Great Commission is, as I see it, the authority of Jesus Christ. The authority of Christ in verse 18 is the foundation. All authority, every bit of exousia, of power, of ruling, governing authority, uh, the right to control something, the right to command it is mine, Jesus says, not because he took it to himself, but because why? It was given to him. Who gave it to him? We said that God the Father was the agent doing the giving to that passive verb. There had to be an agent. Jesus was not the subject of it. It was that all authority was the grammatical subject. All authority was given, but who did the giving? God the Father. Jesus did not grasp that power the wrong way. Remember, I said on Sunday that the devil offered him If you fall down and worship me, then I'll give you all this, all the kingdoms of the world. And Jesus said, look, I'm not going to have anything to do with that, worshiping nobody but God. No, certainly not worshiping the devil. So um, let's see, where else, uh, what else did we talk about? Well, we re-emphasized the idea of his sovereignty, that he is the ruler of all things. Now, does that, I don't think that we have to take that to mean that he's king in the sense that the that the kingdom is operational today because it's not. We're praying for his kingdom to come. And so he's king in waiting. Does that make sense? King in waiting. God said in Hebrews chapter 10 to, uh, actually in Psalm 110 is the quotation from there, but he said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. So Hebrews 10, 13 summarizes and says, there he is waiting, waiting, not ruling, but waiting until his enemies are made his footstool. And and so from the perspective of the millennial kingdom or the mediatorial kingdom, the earthly kingdom, he's not king, but he certainly is sovereign and has never uh, given up his sovereignty as God. Jesus is God, right? Father's God, the Spirit is God. And so we spent some time on Sunday night speaking about the lordship of Christ and the importance of that. There's a big debate about that in evangelical circles, and we talked about that. I tried to put that to rest. I hope that was helpful to you and others maybe who were listening on Sunday. Um, the, The gospel of Christ is a gospel in which Jesus is Lord. And uh, we'll have something more to say about that in just a moment. We looked at a number of commands that the Lord gave in the gospel uh, or that the apostles gave. Mark 1.15, for example, says, Repent and believe the gospel, John the Baptist preaching. Uh, Acts 17.30, God commands all people everywhere to repent. So really last time we're just kind of introducing this idea of all authority and what it means. It certainly is all-encompassing, isn't it? All authority. Authority over what is held back from Jesus? Zero. There's no authority held back from him. He's in charge of everything. So this is why we honor Jesus as we honor the Father. In fact, in John's Gospel in chapter 5, it says, if you don't honor me as you honor the Father, you don't honor the Father. If you honor me, you honor the one who sent me. And derivatively, if you honor the ones that I send, then you're honoring me. So when people trash the ministers of God, Christians, 
they're actually trashing Jesus and he feels that pain with you and probably we could say more poignantly than you do because it's an attack on him and his authority. Now, we said that his authority is foundational to the Great Commission, and this is where I wanted to go tonight. Four implications of his authority being foundational to the Great Commission. It's, it explains why we do the Great Commission, the manner in which we carry it out, and how it is to be received. Okay, we're still just in verse number 18. We'll get to the others later as God permits. So there are four implications here, or kind of subheadings under the foundational matter of his authority. So if you would, Roman numeral one is the foundation of the Great Commission, his authority. And then subpoint A, if you will, under that, well, I guess A would be introduction to what authority is. And then the four points that I'm going to give here are really implications of it. Number one, his authority demonstrates that we must listen to what he says and, what, and do what he commands. We must listen to what he says and do what he commands. The gospel of God's grace has built into it a command. Um, it is not commandless. Does that make sense? Some people want to be antinomian and say, look, the gospel of grace, there's no legalism, there's no law, there's no rules. You just go with the flow, do as the Spirit leads, do whatever. Well, that's not how you read the New Testament. I mean, somebody that says that really hasn't read their New Testament because there are very plain commands given in the New Testament. There are imperatives. There is law. Jesus, the king-in-waiting, is our ruler. He's given us our marching orders. There are certain things that are out of line and prohibited for the Christian. Other things that are expected for the Christian, right? Certain things are just out of line, not appropriate. In fact, I would say this. You know, sometimes we kind of think, I think we probably think a little too much like secularists in that we have a, separate, a hard separation between church and state. And so we think, you know, Jesus is kind of our guy. He tells us what to do. We follow him. All these other people over here, well, they do what they do. The fact of the matter is, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to Jesus, and his commands don't just redirect to the Christians only. They are for everybody. You honor life, whether you're a Christian or you're not a Christian. You believe the gospel, you ought to, you ought to believe whether you're a Christian or not a Christian. Obviously, if you're a Christian, you do believe it, but if you're over here, this is, an, is a command for you as well. Some things are out of line for every human being, and each one will be called to account for those things, whether in their speech or their actions or their attitudes. Can you imagine, I mean, you have people over here in this camp, the unsaved camp, have their conscience, and they might have heard a little bit of the gospel, but can you imagine, or a little bit of the Bible or the Ten Commandments or whatever, can you imagine going before God and being called to account for all the things that you have done in your life and not having had, like, processed those and thought them through in this life. And all of a sudden you're confronted with God, who is Jesus, the the authority over all things, talking to you about what you have done with yourself. Secondly, 
Jesus' authority creates a stewardship assignment for us. Or more simply, I could say, this is a job. This is our job, the Great Commission. Because Jesus is Lord and sovereign and possesses all authority, what he tells us to do is like what he told the apostles. Remember in Acts chapter 1, it says that he ministered for 40 days, teaching them of the things of the kingdom of God and giving them all kinds of commandments, it says. He gave them commandments. He gave them instructions. And what this does is it forms a stewardship arrangement for us, a responsibility to carry out instructions of our master. Look, if you are, um, in a, you're, you know, say you're a person who's fully invested in the family business and the patriarch is on his deathbed and he's about to go, and he gives you key instructions, you know, the combination to the safe, here's what you have, here's where all the gold is hidden, you know, here, here's how you run the business successfully, you know, uh, blah, 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 whatever. Important instructions. He should have probably written them down before he's on his deathbed, but anyway, we'll just imagine that for our illustration's sake. You're going to listen to those, and if he gives you instructions about you do this and you do this and you do this and we've got to pay this debt off and this person owes you that and we've got that bill to pay, you're going to do that, right, if you want the business to carry on. Well, that's Jesus. These are his last words. This is like, you know, the thing to do. This is important. And so we have to carry out the instructions of our master. I've used the word stewardship. One definition of stewardship is this, the careful and responsible management of something entrusted to your care. Careful and responsible management of something entrusted to your care. That's from Merriam-Webster, okay? They're one of our favorite dictionaries. We have a job, and we have to do that job in a manner that's not slipshod, not lazy, not careless, not... One of my favorite phrases, half-baked, <laughs> half-baked. You know, things that are half-baked aren't quite right, are they? Slipshod, by the way, means work that is done without care, without thought, or without organization. So turn it around. Are we doing the Great Commission with care, with thought, and with organization? Uh, we probably do our business with more thought and more care and more organization then we do the Great Commission. Isn't that right? We have more planning meetings in our businesses. We have more organization to our trying to get customers. We have more plans for how to make new products or to do sales or to do marketing or to do whatever than we do with the Great Commission, don't we? I suppose we ought to spend some more time in our church so we don't do a slipshod job of the Great Commission. Number three, Jesus' authority creates for us a delegated authority. So Jesus' authority tells us why we have to listen to what he says. It creates a stewardship assignment for us. And thirdly, it creates for us a delegated authority. Now, what do I mean by that? He has all authority, and he hands us like a piece of that. For example, we have the authority to proclaim a message of salvation and a message of judgment. We have the authority to do that. You have the authority to say that if you believe in Jesus Christ, you will be forgiven. On what, on, 
On whose authority are you saying that, brother? You say, well, I have a delegated authority to say that from Jesus. He told me to say that. So yeah, I can say that. I can 100% say that with 100% confidence. How can you be so dogmatic? You know, Because the God of the universe gave Jesus all authority and he gave him a message that he gave to me to be able to share with others. Jesus gave that message to us and then the authority we have arises out of his all-encompassing authority. This delegated authority is derivative because if our audience does not hear us, then it is not hearing Jesus, right? Jesus is ministering through his church, and so his authority goes along with that. Now, look at John chapter 20, if you would turn there, please. John chapter 20. I want to introduce an idea which, when you're reading your Bible, I bet you scratch your head on this, like I have many a time. I have a better handle on it these days than I did years ago, but still, you you stop to think. John 20, verse 23. This is in a Great uh, Commission-related passage. Uh, Jesus said, as the Father sent me, I send you. Uh, He breathed on them and said them, receive the Holy Spirit. And then verse 23, look at this. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. But if you retain the sins of any, they are retained. Now you say, boy, that, that sounds pretty Catholic to me. Like, you know, the guy behind the, whatever you call that, in the confessional box. He's saying, you know, go in peace, your sins are forgiven. Who gave him that authority to forgive sins? Well, if you don't take it to the excess... Jesus gave us that authority. If somebody comes to me and says, you know, Pastor, I did this and this and this, I say, look, first of all, this isn't a confessional over here, okay? I don't have the reverse collar and all that sort of stuff that Mike jokes with me about. You're not making confession to me. The scripture teaches you to confess your sins to God primarily. Now, I know James 5, 16 says, confess your faults to one another. Well, that's what you're doing is like, it's just like when you get saved. What do you do? You tell somebody. You didn't have to tell anybody to be saved, but you want to tell somebody because God's done something in your life. When you confess your sins to a brother, you're saying, hey, brother, God's done something in me, caused me to confess and repent. I want maybe your accountability to help me not do that thing anymore, check up with me once in a while, that sort of thing. And that's great. That's good. But um, I can tell the brother who comes to me and says something like that, look, if you confess your sins... He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now, I'm just rehearsing a Bible verse, but that's absolutely true. And I have the authority to say that and say, you will be forgiven when you confess your sins. What this language really is, is what we call ratification language. I'll call it that. What it is, is it's saying we're we are saying something that's already been ratified in heaven or we're kind of reiterating what's already been settled. What was settled in heaven is that if you believe in Jesus because his blood paid for the sins, your sins, if you confess them to him, come to him in faith, since that was done, your sins are forgiven. We're just simply repeating that. We're not making up a new... It's not like when somebody comes to me and I say, just like made up out of thin air. Oh, you're forgiven. I don't make that up out of thin air. I make that up out of the blood of Christ, which already accomplished all of that. So it's ratification language. God has informed the church as to his evaluation of things. 
and authorize the church to make proclamations about things that are already true. If you believe the gospel, your sins are forgiven. That is truth settled in heaven, and we can give it to people. If, on the other hand, you do not believe the gospel, you still are carrying around the weight of your own sin and are not forgiven. I mean, what did Jesus, if you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. I mean, you can, on the, you know, on the, on the other hand, you can say to somebody, look, you're living in sin. You show no evidence of repentance. You, you actually love your sin. You're not confessing your sin. You are not going to be forgiven. This is what Jesus did when he said, if you do not believe that I am he, you will what? Die in your sins. Some of us are familiar with that passage in John's gospel. You will die in your sins. Fact. Like axiom. Okay? Theorem number one in the textbook. That's what that is. So, uh, similar language, by the way, is used in Matthew's gospel. If you go back to Matthew, just a couple, few chapters earlier, Matthew chapter 16. Matthew 16. I want to try to be clear about this because it's not, the power for, for forgiveness does not come from us. We're just simply rehearsing or repeating uh, what has been provided already in God. Look in, uh, in Christ. Look in Matthew 6, 9, uh, 16, rather. Matthew 16, verse 19. Peter, and, and as a representative of the whole church, I believe, in verse 19, to him Jesus says, And I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Remember what keys represent? Authority. Remember that from Sunday night? We talked about keys. Keys represent authority. You, you're the, you, you know, you have the, uh, I sometimes, I've, I, I think people walk through the uh, church parking lot or parents come that haven't seen me before and drop their kids off and they're like, who is this guy that drives in here like he owns the place? <laughs> like I park in my parking spot or any, any parking spot along there and I get out my briefcase and I walk to the, I open the door with my key and I walk in like, who is that guy? I'm just the pastor that's been here for way longer than your kids have ever been here. <laughs> you know, and uh, that's a kind of an authority, you know, figure that you, that you possess because you have the key. Well, Jesus says, I'll give you the keys of the kingdom, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Okay, that binding and loosing language is the same as what we just read in John chapter 20. It's not, it doesn't mean you tie somebody up or you loosen them from a chain. It means that you're, you're making a, pro, a, a proclamation of divine truth, binding. You're, you know, for, you're not going to be forgiven if you don't confess, your, if you don't believe in Jesus. Uh, or you're loosed, you're freed from your iniquities. Paul used that when he said, look, we receive now the reconciliation that's in Christ. How blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute sin, David said, and Paul reiterated in Romans chapter 4. He can say that because he has this key, as it were, to bind and to loose. And the same thing in Matthew chapter 18, just a couple chapters later, it says in 18 verse number... Uh, 18, assuredly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. There's some indication, too, in the grammar here that it's really like this. Whatever you bind on earth will have been bound in heaven already, and whatever you loose on earth will already have been loosed in heaven. You're making 
And, and by the way, that's in the context of removing somebody from the church membership who is unrepentant in terms of our ministry to unrepentant people. And, you know, if the church says, look, you're sinning and you're not part of us anymore, and I'm talking about a rightly operating church now, I'll talk about that in just a moment, then God's approving of that measure that the church took which says that really the church is actually just saying what God already had determined was the case, and the person to whom that proclamation is made ought to be shaking in their boots, saying, wait a minute, the church of Jesus Christ, under the authority of Jesus himself, who has all authority in heaven and on earth, has said that I don't belong to the church. Yikes. Wow. Wait a minute, that's right. That ought to cause you to repent and get back on track, shouldn't it? Not one of these things where you say, well, fooey on them, I'll go somewhere else. I'll take my sin wherever I please, I'll take my sin. Well, that's not a, that's not a smart idea in my book. The issue is one of authority, and Jesus has delivered that authority to the church. Now listen, the church that is rightly operating and carefully handling sin in accordance with the Bible, is delegated the, the authority to state whether someone's sins are forgiven or not. Let me say it again because it's a complicated sentence. The church that is rightly operating and uh, handling sin in accordance with the Bible has the authority to say whether someone's sins are retained or forgiven. Now, obviously, this is a power that can be misused, Right? We're not talking about a, you know, church of a house with a guy and a few people with no deacons and no pastor and no constitution and no doctrinal statement, you know, just some kind of arrangement, you know, some weird uh, house church kind of thing. We're not talking about that. We're talking about a proper church ordered according to the New Testament, operating according to the New Testament, and then handling sin in accordance with the Bible, i.e., like Matthew eighteen fifteen, not just you know, the pastor or somebody doesn't like so-and-so, and so they're getting rid of them out of the church and all that sort of thing. So any, any authority or power can be misused. I think the Catholic Church has done a terrible job thinking that they're the kingdom of God on earth. You know, when we pray, you know, your kingdom come, we didn't mean the Catholic Church. We meant that Jesus would come and establish his kingdom on this earth. Um, so some churches fail on the rightly operating portion of my, of my definition there, and others fail on the carefully handling the Bible portion. But it becomes pretty obvious when there is a clear violation of scriptural teaching with no repentance. If there's no repentance, then I highly doubt if there's been confession either, because they go together hand in hand. Without the ingredients of repentance and confession, there's no forgiveness. I mean... Just think about the gospel. The gospel says repent and believe. Where does forgiveness come from? Forgiveness comes from A, God has a disposition to forgive you. He's provided a way for your sins to be forgiven in Jesus. Two, you have a desire to be forgiven and you want to be forgiven and you appeal to God for that forgiveness and then the two of you get together, this is step three, and things get made right. So God has a heart for forgiveness. You know, if God said, look, I'm not forgiving nobody, no how, then we'd be cooked. 
we would have no chance. But he has a disposition to forgive us. And then if we have a disposition to receive that forgiveness, and then we, and we, re, we express it by repenting, right, by confession, then we have a transaction of forgiveness. But if one or the other of those parties has no heart for forgiveness or confession, you know, to forgive or to confess, then no real reconciliation can ever happen. And so uh, we don't want to make it too complicated, but, you know, it's the same with any kind of sin. If you, if you say, I want to hold on to my sin, in fact, one of the young people, was it you, Sam? If I regard iniquity, was it you or was it somebody else? It was you. It, he says, it was me. <laughs> if I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. Isn't that a powerful verse? Where is that found, by the way? Is that Psalm 68, 18 or something like that? Amazing, excellent recitation of Scripture. But um, no confession, then there's no forgiveness. If we confess, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. But without confession, you're showing that you're not of a mind to care about sin. And so if that's the case, if a person is saying, I'm not of a mind to care about my sin, then it's not a stretch or an abuse of power for the church to call sin a sin, is it? It's not an abuse of power at all. It's just the, sin, the, the church saying what sin is. It's being discerning. Now let this sink in. There are sins that people do, even professing believers, which are hanging over their heads in an unforgiven state. Can you feel that weight of unforgiven sin hanging over your head because you've refused to confess it? Now, finally, I know I'm, I started a few minutes late, so you'll give me a couple more minutes, right? Keep on going, he says. Uh, the, this is foundational stuff to the Great Commission. Finally, number four, Jesus' authority. Now, let me say, let me go back. Number one was we have to listen to Jesus because he has all authority, okay? Number two was that we have a stewardship because he has all authority. Number three is because he has authority, he's delegated a piece of that to us. And number four is not regarding us really at all, although when we were unsaved, it applied to us. Now I'm really focusing on what is the implication of Jesus' authority with regard to the rest of the world, Here it is. Jesus' authority means that his gospel is incumbent for all of creation. Do you know what incumbent means? It's not like recumbent, you know, a recumbent bicycle when you're sitting back and pedaling away doing your exercises. That's not it. Incumbent means it's a necessary duty to respond to the gospel. All of humanity is subject to the requests of Jesus, his demands, his orders. This relates what I was saying before, that his authority doesn't only apply to the church, it also applies to everybody else, because he's the God of the universe. Kings and all who are in authority, farmers, peasants, servants, and slaves, both small and great, have an obligation to respond to the good news of Jesus Christ. They have an obligation to attend carefully to his words. If they do not follow that obligation, that itself is a violation of the law of God. 
Do you, are you with me? If you don't listen to the command of God, you, I mean, again, the secular mindset, separation of church and state. Don't talk to me about the things of God. No, I will talk to you about the things of God, whether you like it or not, because it is incumbent upon you to respond. It's in fact, if you don't respond, it is rebellion against God. It is treason of the highest sort. That's why sin is so serious. You say, what did I do? I was a nice person. I, I didn't rob any banks, you know, our, our classic example. Right, yeah. We need to help people see that they are rebels against God when they say, I don't have to listen to him. It's very bad to ignore God. You know that? Here, picture this. I, I, uh, they'll leave me out of it. Person A wants to talk to person B, and they call out to them. They say they're, maybe they're halfway across the room. You know, hey, person B, how are you? And person B just keeps on walking. Person B, person B, and they just keep on walking. They don't even turn their head to look. But you know that they've heard because you know they don't have a hearing aid or they do if it's turned on, okay? <laughs> they're listening. You know they've heard, but they're ignoring you. They don't want to talk to you. Let's imagine now that person A and person B are doing that and there are a hundred other people just watching. What do those hundred other people think about person B? That person is really bad for ignoring person A. Now let's just imagine that person B, uh, sorry, that person A is God. You with me? As bad as the 100 people think it is that person A is being ignored by person B, it's far worse if person A is God and he's being ignored by person B, maybe you, right? That's an offense of the highest sort, a high offense against God. If it's bad in human terms to ignore somebody, then it's really bad in divine terms. In theology, this idea that we're talking about has been given a name. And the name is this, duty, faith. Duty, faith. D-U-T-Y, faith. What does that mean? It means faith is an obligation. Faith is a duty. It is, this, this is what one definition had in uh, the... Um, a new Dictionary of Theology. It said this, duty faith. Is the, it is the duty of all who hear the gospel to savingly believe in Christ. That's an accurate description of our situation as humans. The Bible is very clear that it is a duty. God commands every, all men everywhere. I always get the every and the all confused. He commands all men everywhere, every man allwhere, <laughs> to repent. It's a command. Any command to repent and believe in Jesus shows this in the New Testament. There's repent and believe the gospel, commanded to repent, believe. If you don't believe, you die in your sins, all of that. A command is an expression of the will of God that runs right smack into your will. It's God's will versus your will. Indeed, God is telling you what to do. That's the gospel based on the fact that Jesus has how much authority? All of it. He has all authority in heaven and on earth, above, below, beneath, in, 
outside, above, beyond, in the universe. He has all authority. So it really forms for us the why we must listen, the how we must carry out the Great Commission in, in a, a, as a stewardship arrangement. It, um, it tells us, uh, it gives us a delegated authority, so we have power to share in the gospel. The gospel is the power of God to salvation. And then it, it means that the, the gospel is incumbent upon unbelievers. There's duty faith. Okay? It is a duty to believe. And that's just how it is, <laughs> according to God's word. So uh, there's some more in the notes there about duty faith, a little, little snippet there. Some people criticize that idea, but I'll go with the scriptures on it myself. Whether it fits a certain theological system or not doesn't matter to me. It's clear that in Greek, it's an imperative form many, many times. Believe the gospel. You don't have a choice, okay? So you can tell, when it comes right down to it, you can tell your unbelieving neighbor, relative, friend, or whatever, the Bible tells you you must believe the gospel. You don't have a choice. Well, you kind of have a choice, but if you don't, you're going to find out the consequences later on. And so it's a must. Please don't ignore the duty of faith in the gospel. It's based on the authority of Christ. There's still no other name under heaven. Yeah, that's great. Whereby we must be saved. Acts 4.12. Tremendous truth. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the reminder of the all authority, the foundation of the gospel. And we'll soon be able to look at the assignment of the gospel and the assurance uh, underlying the gospel and some of the resources provided for, for the gospel worker. Uh, but tonight, our focus is on still all authority. And Lord, may we consider our stewardship in that. May we consider our obligation to it. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.